Welcome back to Institutionalized, a podcast for American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Charles Fane Lehman, fellow at the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor of City Journal. I'm Aaron Tabarium, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. Aaron, how are you doing this week? I'm good. Relatively recently, I was in Princeton, New Jersey, visiting some friends. And you know, as one does, it's a real nice town, a lot of nice chocolate places. I did not realize that Princeton had so much chocolate, but there you go. You know, I, I kept comparing it to New Haven because we both went to Yale and it... it <laughs> you find someone to work the introduction of every no, 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 I don't. Okay. <laughs> okay no, it's all well, so, so anyway, I mean, I've come to the conclusion begrudgingly that, well, well, there's a lot I like about New Haven, actually, but but Princeton... It's, there's square it's blocks. Nicer. It's, it's, there's no... Yeah, I mean, like, there's no crime. It's really peaceful. There's nice stuff. And the university is really beautiful. And it got me thinking. My 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 primary association with Princeton, just briefly, is is the television show House, which takes place at the fictional Princeton Plainsboro Hospital in Princeton okay. near Princeton, New Jersey. And what I've concluded from the show is that there's like something radioactive in the groundwater in Princeton because they have a much higher density of bizarre, unexplained illnesses than any other place in the United States. So there's something wrong. That is with okay. That, that is fascinating. But 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 putting that aside. <laughs> It, it's a it's a very nice place to live. It's a university that has a ton of money, right? And it clearly shows, which got me thinking, what if we completely liquidated Princeton's endowment and spent all of the money on helping the poor in the developing world? I mean, there's so much money there. That like, wouldn't that be, wouldn't that, might that not be a better use of it? You know, I don't, think we, I don't think we, I don't think like, we have to spend all the developing world. Privileged people, you don't? No, I mean, I think we can just liquidate it and then like use it to buy ice cream, but that's fine. Well, I, I, I agree that that might well be a better use of Princeton's endowment. However, I think that's a good segue into what we were going to be talking about, which Charles can now introduce. <laughs> yeah, so, so this, this week we're talking about the weird world of effective altruism. Is our, is our, is our topic for the week. Effective altruists who may or may not, we'll get into this with our guests, whether or not they endorse liquidating Princeton's actually maybe that'll be our opening question whether or not they endorse liquidating Princeton's endowment to uh, buy bed nets in the third world what is effective altruism we'll ask our guests about this but I you know I I like to think that in some senses it really ends up meaning two things um one is you know uh, effective altruism is an application of principles of effective policy design to charitable giving it's sort of the idea that you should try to maximize the returns of charitable giving but the the, the dollar benefit but at the same time, you know, I think it also often encodes both the community and the community with a series of value judgments about what benefit actually connotes with a tendency to for what I might call place and time in different utilitarianism. The idea that people in the developing world are equally deserving of trouble giving as people in the developed world, people are your neighbors, and the people in the future, by some accounts, are equally deserving of support as people in the present. They're really into bed nets and also AI risk. Effective altruism has been in the news a lot recently. Uh, philosopher uh, McCaskill's book, What We Are to the Future. That's right. Yeah, that's in my notes. They're, they have, have, have sort of effectively advanced the, the quote-unquote long-termist position in the media. So, you know, we're, we like sheep to the slaughter are being drawn to this conversation as well. Aaron, what's your take? We're sort of like intuitively people who 
should like EA, but are skeptical, I think. Yeah, well, so so I... Like, we're nerds, but we're like right. nerds who hate nerds, so that's a problem. Yeah, no, that that's true. I mean, I have a lot of thoughts, and I won't, you know, bump bombard you or a guest with them in our introduction but i would say the main thing i'm interested in is how this philosophy can be applied to institutional design really if it can be or whether there's kind of an inherent tension between what charles calls sort of place and time in different utilitarianism and the very project of building up functioning institutions because it seems to me that every good institution we have that's generated lots of value for the world, including capitalism, the welfare state, all sorts of things, does presuppose a certain degree of partiality. And effective altruism, this isn't the whole thing, but a big part of it, one of the motivations is kind of this, I would say, impartialist view of the world and of morality. And, and I'm interested in sort of whether this, this ethos can be harnessed to make institutions just better right? And for kind of to apply effective altruism to institutions, or whether those who see kind of human progress primarily through the lens of institutions and well-functioning kind of institutional design should them should sort of be worried about this as kind of an ideology that's going to corrode what makes the institutions function. That's basically what I'm interested in. Charles? Yeah. I mean, this is, I guess this is the week where Aaron is, is more committed to the bit of the podcast than I am. You know, I I think that I think that sort of in my crankier moments, I suspect that a lot of EA in practice, if not in theory, is is a kind of root affiliation. There's a there's a an analysis that went around a while a month ago, looking at the Open Philanthropy Foundation's work on criminal justice reform. As listeners may know, I am critical of criminal justice reform as a movement, but I think you know, pointing out that. Oh, there's major EA, major EA giver did not seem to subject criminal justice reform to the same kind of rigorous evaluation that it does perhaps its work on malaria. And, you know, I, I, I'm not sort of, you know, I think, I think EA is often inspired by the, the rational, the sort of rationalist analysis of, of cognitive biases of blind spots, but are just, you know, behave in the same way, behave in the same sets of ways as other as as other groups that they sort of try to move beyond. So I, I I guess I wonder if those constraints are escapable at all. That's yeah, a good summary of the things I mentioned. And, and you know, I think I think the top, like I said, Aaron and I are the sort of person who should be more sympathetic to EA than we are. So I'd be curious to see if our guests can give us ten percent in that direction. I actually am somewhat sympathetic to it, okay. but we'll get to that. That's fine. Fine, I am. We'll see if the, our guest can give us some something like ten percent in that direction. Me, something like ten percent in that direction before we get to our guest. Let's take a two-minute break, a one-minute break, however long break, to hear from our sponsors. From the grocery store to the gas station, working families are getting hammered by rising prices. But instead of focusing on inflation, Congress is pushing anti-innovation legislation that will impose more financial burdens on working people and seniors. Their misguided agenda could cost public pension plans $109 billion teachers, firefighters, and nurses would pay the heaviest price. Congress needs to focus on inflation and leave American workers alone. We're back. With that excellent ad note, why don't we go ahead and introduce our guest, Kelsey Piper, is a Stafford at Vox, where she works primarily on the Future Perfect vertical, covering a variety of topics from an effective altruism perspective. She was previously the founder of Stanford Effective Altruism. 
Kelsey, welcome to Institutionalized. Thank you. And it's great to be here. And some of your introductory comments were really fascinating. And I, I'm excited. I think this might be one of like the more interesting EA conversations I've had. We we hope so. That's the goal. So why don't we, I was going to ask you a different question. I was going to ask you a Rikos Basilisk, but maybe we'll come to that later. Let me, let's, we, we'd like to open with a bracket of question. So do you have a strong argument against liquidating Princeton's endowment? Or are you all in on liquidating Princeton's endowment? Where are you at on that? I mean, where I'm at is it's easy to say you could spend other people's money on bed nets. I feel like it's actually like in some ways a lot more radical and a lot more hardcore to say I'm going to spend my money on bed nets than to say, yeah, I'd be happy to spend, for instance, money on bed nets. But yeah, if for some reason you put me in charge of the endowments of these these top schools, they don't need billions of dollars. They probably need some money to weather particular situations. It's probably less than a tenth of what they have. You should totally spend the rest on something with social value because I, I I don't think they need it. And when people donate another $500 million to a university to get a building named after them, yeah, I kind of judge that. I think it's stupid. Oh, wow. Well, uh, well, I'm already super on board with this. If it justifies, you know, even even reducing the endowments by half, that's great. Well, well so let's just back up a bit. And we, we sort of made some preliminary comments about it. And I think a lot of our listeners will be familiar. But Kelsey, could you just walk us through a kind of what is effective altruism? How would you define it? And then B, sort of how and when did it start? Who are the leading figures, et cetera? Yeah, absolutely. So I think effective altruism is a social movement, intellectual movement around trying to change the ways we do good. And it's sort of key premises are that we should aim to yeah, do good as cost effectively as possible. We should evaluate how where our dollar goes the farthest in doing good in like ways that are standard in the business world, but not necessarily standard in the nonprofit world. And yeah, I think impartiality, I think there's some room for like pragmatic partiality. Like I am better at helping people near me than people far away from me because I have more information, but not for like fundamental or moral partiality. Like people are not of greater worth because they are closer to me. People in the future mattering as well, which is where a lot of the weirder EA focuses come from, is looking really hard at if humanity doesn't survive the next century, why would that be? What would cost us that? And what can we do to make sure that doesn't happen? Like, in terms of just a, a sociological history or whatever, you have like the rationalist movement. You have like a bunch of philosophers at Oxford who are sort of working in the Peter Singer tradition of like, hey, utilitarianism is actually extremely morally demanding. Like what, what would taking that seriously look like? And you sort of have a meeting of minds in like GiveWell, which started trying to evaluate which charities in global health and development seem to get you the best bang for your buck and then expanded into, yeah, the Open Philanthropy Project, which tries to answer the same question for a wide range of areas that are much harder to evaluate than global health. Pandemic prevention, how do we like most cheaply avoid the next COVID? Reducing nuclear risk, managing emerging technologies like AI and, you know, synthetic biology and DNA synthesis, criminal justice, macroeconomic policy, they, they, they do like a pretty wide range of stuff and they're still trying the same approach as the global health stuff in terms of where do you get the most bang for your buck in, in this impartialist framework. But, you know, those questions are hard enough to answer in global health and they get a lot harder as soon as you move to anything else. So, so I sort of wonder, I, you know, I think that there's, and, 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 and this is a piece of rationalist language, but there's sort of a, a Mott and Bailey version of, of EA that I want you to ask you to engage with where 
for listeners, you know, Mott and Bailey is like a strong version, weak version of the same position. You go from one to the other. Where the weaker claim is EA is about making terrible decisions more effectively. And then the, you know, once 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 people commit to that, then the stronger version is, well, therefore we need to be committed to, among other things, a much longer time time horizon for how we give, how we support, how we build institutions. Another one is as 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 you alluded to, there's no sort of sub-moral reason for concerning ourselves with the people around immediately proximate to us as opposed to the people on the other side of the planet. What do you see as sort of the do you do you agree with that characterization? And given that, what do you see as the sort of strong arguments for the latter two premises, that time and place and difference? Yeah. So I do think that EA like owes it to people to be pretty upfront about where our premises are weird. Like to the extent that we're using non-standard styles of thinking to come up with our recommendations, you, you do want that front and center. You don't want to say like, this is just what anybody should be doing if if it's in fact dependent on believing some weird stuff about time and space impartiality or whatever. But I think that like the fundamental value here, like I, I will defend it. And I think it's just pretty clearly true. I think that like a lot of really good and valuable ethical movements have made a lot of progress through in principle universalism. Like in in any specific case, you might be partialed because for, for pragmatic reasons, but like Christianity is universalist. And you were, you were saying during the intro, like there's no institution that that is sort of universalist. And I, I think like one of history's most successful institutions is the Catholic Church, which is at least in principle, you know, every single human being. And I think that like, there is a lot of value to starting with, okay, on the assumption that every single human being matters morally and matters the same, then we may end up focusing on the ones near us or focusing on ones who are uniquely positioned to achieve stuff. But sort of grounding first this, this conviction that everybody matters and then building partiality insofar as it, it does come back just out of like the, the, the occasions where there's a pragmatic case for it. And, and, and that's kind of where I'm at. And, and I, I do think that's like somewhat distinctive about EA, but not that weird. Like a lot of people believe something in that genre. We, there's a Ton to cover, but but I do want to ask about this. Just, so, I think the there's there's the pragmatic argument for partiality, right? Like, just well, look, you know, it's not realistic to to be to, to treat literally everyone exactly the same, like you have your family, etc. But but I mean, I think there's a sort of deeper philosophical worry some people would have, which is, look, the very the the good ultimately, like what we're ultimately trying to maximize, is itself kind of constituted by relationships of partiality, right? Like families, like what it is to be a family is in some sense to be partial to, you know, your spouse or your children, right? And and so it's not just, I mean, I think the intuition here is not just like, oh, well, you know, do we think this is practical? It's like, if everyone thought like this and their mindset was, you know, how can I do the most good for people across the world? It, it's not just that that might in practice, like, you know, cause problems. It's that it would actually make it impossible for people to form the kinds of bonds that are constitutive of the good. And then you kind of take this Kantian idea. It's like, well, if everyone did that, then like nobody would end up living the good life, you know, because they'd all be so busy trying to help each other that they wouldn't actually, no one would be realizing flourishing. And so there's like a worry that it's almost like a self defeating project if we have this kind of conception of the good that, that's based on partial relationships. So how do you respond to that kind of worry? 
Yeah. So I guess just my first answer is I have a wife. She means the world to me. I have two kids, you know, a five-year-old and a two-year-old and and we're trying to have a third, which is more complicated because as I said, I have a wife. We want six. I think that like in practice, my philosophical belief that every human being is of equal value does not actually interfere with loving my wife. It does not actually interfere with like specifically rejoicing in my wife's successes and like wanting the best for my wife and, you know, thinking of mm. specific nice things I can do for her and cleaning the kitchen when she had a bad day. Like, I think you could imagine a that that outcome. You could imagine a world where EA did interfere with all of those things. And in that case, I think it would be wrong because that sounds like a pretty unhealthy way for people to live. But in practice, I think the philosophical conviction that my wife, for all that she is the most important person in the world to me, is you know, of the same inherent value as every other person alive, like doesn't get in the way of us having a special relationship. And the sense that I like, if I can save people's lives, then I should be trying to save people's lives whose lives I can save the most cheaply, like doesn't interfere with love and, you know, the special relationships that human life is made of. But it seems like, it seems like, and Either that, so 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 one of my objections to to universalizing institutions, and this is true as much of VA, if not more so, as it is of this is true as much of the Catholic Church, if not more so, than it is of my sort of thinking about EA, is that it seems like one story there is that these two things are intention. Another story there is that people just have contradictory revealed preferences, right? My 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 principles might tell me that I have universal obligation to everybody indifferently. People are just people. I have a total obligation to the guy in the third world. And in theory, what I should go do is like move to Africa and spend my all of my earnings doling out deworming pills. And then in practice, I don't do that. But it seems to me like there are lots of people who profess that view who nonetheless live an alternative way. So so why should I think that that is not a problem of inconsistency in principles rather than these two things can be reconciled? So I guess I think, one, I'm pretty pro-hypocrisy. I tend to think it's like pretty good for people to be like, I think factory farming is really wrong, but I still eat meat because I would have a really hard time not eating meat. Or I think I should never yell at my kids, but like I, I do have bad days and yell at my kids. Or, you know, I think that in principle, I should like be much more politically engaged in my community. I should do those things, but I'm not living up to that. I, I just think that's healthier than only having standards for yourself that you consistently meet. Like I, I think it's worth aiming a little high. And the other thing is, so my wife and I donate between fifty dollars and $100,000 a year to global health charities that we find effective. You know, we haven't moved to Africa to start handing out deworming pills, but that is a real, it comes at a real cost. It is, you know, money that we could instead spend on ourselves. We are very well off, so we still do get to spend lots of money on ourselves. We target 30% of our income for giving. But it is like, I, I I think there's a lot in the space where maybe you're not going all the way with this, but you're in fact going a fair bit farther than most people. And like far enough that that it's not just an easy, like professing it and not, not acting on it thing. And that's still enough to, you know, save a lot of lives. And and that seems good. I, I, I feel like we, 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 we constantly threaten to have like some sort of vegetarianism episode. We'll have you back in vegetarianism episode, which is the same debate. Aaron, Aaron, you should you should take us in a different direction because we could get down this rabbit hole all day. Yeah. Oh God. I'm like so tempted to just go down a rabbit hole on all of this because I like these ethics things. But let's 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 do some other questions and then we can come back to like the deep, you know, is utilitarianism true? And we'll go there. But but so 
Okay. Before we get we we get into the really crazy stuff, I, I want to ask sort of some practical questions. Which is, it, it seems like one of the things effective altruists have have done is argue that a lot of charities aren't like super effective, right? It's a it's not just a positive program, but it's also a, a kind of critique. So so I mean, just to start on this line of questioning, could you just like run through some of the institutions that effective altruists have sort of argued, no, you know, you should stop giving here, right? Like this doesn't really help the world enough. Yeah. So I think there are some like famous examples of intended well charitable efforts that actually just backfired or made things worse or whatever. In Will McCaskill's first book, Doing Good Better, he profiles like play pumps. And the idea was we'll make a water pump that is like a merry-go-round that kids play on. And then as they play on it, they'll pump water. Well, it turns out that like they're there's a lot of resistance in a water pump that's used to pump water and kids won't do that. And so what they ended up with is they like built these things in place of normal water pumps. And then they had women who were like turning these merry-go-round, which is a lot more work than just turning a normal water pump. So there's that kind of thing where it's like, if you had done nothing at all, if you had stayed home, we would be better off. And just, I think there's broadly some like institutions in the charity space that are all about like finding and marketing a cool idea that resonates with donors and without any accountability or follow-up or checking if, you know, the results are good. Then there's like a lot going wrong in aid that's more complicated than that. Like maybe this does help, but there's not very systematic, like follow-up and accountability. Maybe this does help, but there's a lot of political pressure to overstate results and like over credit partners. Maybe this does help, but it's also like implemented through governments that like are doing some pretty horrific stuff and that our money, you know, can, can cause problems there. So I think aid is, you know, in, in a lot of ways, just a microcosm of every problem that any institution has. Like you're trying to do something and you need to make sure that the result, that everybody along the way has incentives to actually get results instead of like incentives to report results or incentives to brag about things to other people. And when the recipients are like very poor and not very connected with anybody else in the chain of like accountability here, you, you can get some pretty bad stuff. So I think there's there's a lot wrong with aid, but a lot of it comes down to like, just that that's a very difficult problem. Well, well, so I, I mean, I think there's another though, there's a way you can take this, which is, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not just about like say government foreign aid, but it's, it's, you know, it just, if I'm deciding like what charity, you know, say in the US to donate to, right, you obviously want to pick the one that's like going to save a lot of lives rather than one that just like, you know, doesn't do very much. I mean, it's interesting. It seems to me, I think we want to get into this a little more later about like sort of the political valence of EA, but it it seems to me that applying that principle consistently, we should, you know, be spending money on what does the most good seems to impugn not just a few, but like a lot of like pretty venerated progressive nonprofits. Right. Because it's I, I think, be, that, yeah, I think a lot of the progressive nonprofit space is appalling. I think there's a lot of really bad organizations out there right. that are taking a lot of money and doing nothing to make the world better. For like, I yeah, like very, yeah, good. like, like for, I mean, for example, I, I have a more controversial thing I'll get into in a little bit, but, but like one thing, you know, we've, we've talked on the show a bit about DEI consultancies and like, you know, I, I'm sure there is a way that you could do some of that, that would not be bad and maybe would be good, but like, you know, even even taking it in as charitably as possible, like 
you know, these are, this is, these are like billion dollar industries. It's like, all right, how much good is this doing compared to like, uh, you know, a normal welfare program or like compared to, you know, bed nets and app. It just seems like a lot of things that have commanded a lot of kind of outsized attention among sort of the progressive commentariat just really would not pass this test. Yeah, no, I think that there is very little indication that people are at all less racist as a result of DEI training. Yeah. They, they just don't work. Like purely from a perspective of we should try and do things that work. No. And I kind of think that a lot of people involved don't care that they don't work. They're not trying to like make workplaces more diverse and inclusive. They're trying to like cover yeah. themselves against legal things or show off their, their bona fides to their friends or whatever. Yeah, I... I think that a lot of that stuff is very bad and should go. Yeah, so so let me let me ask the related question I brought up earlier. There's a there's an EA evaluation. I think when I went on one of the EA forums and then it ended up in my corner of Twitter, which was looking at open philanthropies giving to criminal justice reform. And the best takeaway was that, or the the the, the, the takeaway was that it wasn't particularly. Sorry, that open philanthropy did not do a great job assessing the impact of their criminal justice reform giving. And it did not really meet the usual standards for cost effectiveness expected of open philanthropy. And there's a series of speculation about what went wrong there, varying from people were over overly enthusiastic to there was some degree of capture and mood affiliation. The criminal justice reform was like a really hot topic that like every, you know, Netflix was excited about, the Republican Party was excited about, everybody was excited about, and open philanthropy should have hopped on the train. A, I'm just sort of assuming that you're familiar with this uh, with this uh, discourse. Cool, it's just nodding. But B, okay, so so what is your takeaway from that? What can you learn about sort of our ability to actually act like good, effective altruists from that? And why should I not sort of look at that and go, eh, EA is just going to giving to what their biases tell them they should give to? So I, I do want to say, I, I don't think Open Phil's criminal justice giving was good. It's also like much less than 1% of what EA does. And I think a lot of the other stuff is in much less like controversial culture war areas. I think my inclination is it is incredibly hard to do something that's yeah not captured, not like going along with the flow or whatever. If you're working in a like area where people have tons of very strong opinions, I think it's just a lot harder to that with the rigor that's necessary to get in. The default for aid programs is for them. I think by default, they won't get anything done. And so if you want to do better than that, you need to like be applying a visual degree of carefulness and truth seeking and like willingness to not have sacred cows and, and step outside what, what's normal and, and what's considered. And the more hot button something is, the harder all of that gets to do. And the harder that gets to do, you know, the better the odds that you don't actually end up getting anything done. So I, I guess I tend to think if something is hot button, EA should stay away from it. So yeah, I think I think I want to I want to turn a little bit towards uh, related to that. I, I alluded to at the top of the show an evaluation of the Open Society Foundation's criminal justice work, criminal justice reform work, which sort of reached the conclusion that a it was probably did not meet impact standard that open philanthropy usually has. B, it wasn't really necessarily as well measured. And it sort of seems to me like an example of EA sort of veering into sort of more hot button issues, not succeeding at its own professed goals. So why should I not be concerned about the kind of biases that tend to produce outcomes like the ones that you were talking about earlier, 
the producing, you know, the the strange water pumps. Why should not be concerned with those biases determining EA commitments in other areas? Yeah. So I think one thing I'd say is that the EA giving on criminal justice is a really small share, like less than 1% of overall EA. Now, EA does some crazy controversial stuff that is a large share of what EA does. Like the AI stuff, I think, is a fair, fair thing. But the criminal justice stuff is a pretty small share. I do think that for the most part, it was like not money well spent, not because there's nothing in this space that could be valuable. Like, I certainly think that... (laughs) the way the policing and criminal justice institutions in the U.S. are set up right now is not very much achieving any of our goals on the safety front or the humaneness front or whatever, but they didn't really succeed at moving the needle on that. And probably predictably, I think that when something is a hot button issue, it's really hard to bring to it the the clarity and rigor. And my sense is that by default, aid fails and by default, efforts to make things better fail. And so if you're going to beat that, you're going to need to have like a pretty unusual degree of carefulness and thoughtfulness and like a plan. And it's just much harder to bring all of that to a hot button political issue that everybody is throwing in on and that everybody has strong feelings about. I know another area Openfill looked at initially was immigration, which is another like potentially could have a huge impact, but they ended up deciding that it was, you know, sufficiently politically divisive and sufficiently like hard to move things in that space that it wasn't a good EA area, even though it's important because important doesn't mean we like can do anything about it. Yeah, well, so and I'll I'll, I'll admit that this is sort of verging into you're you're slowly convincing me from one criticism of EA to a separate longer standing criticism of all policy evaluation in general, of which EA is therefore a subset. So I think that's a success on your part, but I sort of wonder about. There's a there's a long school of what I might call policy pessimism, which observes that this is this Rossi's iron law, Peter Rossi, the sociologist, which is that the 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 expected value of any social science of excuse me, any social policy intervention is zero, and it's really hard to get past that. We're much better at policy evaluation than we were when Rossi was like a force in the 1970s and 80s, and still the expected value of most interventions is zero. So I guess, I guess, are you, how do you, how do you, do you, do you think that EAs are sufficiently policy pessimistic? Do you think that they are more optimistic, that people should be more optimistic or more pessimistic, not necessarily about policy, but the, the ability of social programs, public or private, to change things? So I think one, one thing that comes to mind here is like a sort of efficient market hypothesis. You should expect if you're buying stocks that they'll do about as well as the stock market. You should like not expect you can just beat the stock market. But in aid programs, you might think there are specific areas where you're like able to, to, to beat the market or whatever, because you care about something far, far more than other people do. Like if you, like this is one of the arguments for localism, right? Like you care far, far more about your neighborhood park than anyone else. And so even if in general on a large scale, interventions have very little effect and stuff, like the case, that shouldn't be a very strong argument that you can improve your local park because you, like very few people have probably tried improving your local park and you have like several unique advantages at improving your local park. And similarly, I think a lot of the case for EA is that because we care about some things that most people don't care about, often fixing those hasn't been tried and there's low hanging fruit. Often the number of people who have seriously attempted it is pretty small. Often you are not pushing against another established group like with immigration or like a huge network of established group with their own interests like criminal justice. If you're giving out bed nets in an area where there weren't bed net distributions before, like there, there's, 
I, I don't think the expected value there is zero. I, I think it's probably smaller than a naive analysis that's just like, well, how good are bed nets? How many did you give out? That's how good it is. It's definitely smaller than that, but I don't think it's zero. And part of that is that you like found something where there was good reason to think you could outperform a baseline. It, it's interesting because it it seems though like then, ob- so obviously effective altruism is, is you know, different it is a discrete thing i i'm not going to argue that it just collapses into kind of common sense morality the bed net thing is a good example but but it does seem like you know once once you admit a certain degree of policy pessimism and acknowledge that in all sorts of areas there are these established institutions that make it hard to you know move the needle one could imagine ea at least in certain areas starting to look kind of like just more conventional, ordinary morality where you think like, and it's not, you know, inconsistent, but it's just, you say, look, like we're better at predicting what our interventions will do in things that are in areas of life that are near to us. Right. And so, you know, because of these epistemic constraints, actually maybe the best way to spend our time is perhaps, I don't know if this is really would work, but like, you know, helping the park or whatever in your local backyard like like it, like there's a way you can imagine ea almost collapsing into just kind of normal common sense almost not very ideological morality and in a sense right that that almost goes it's a kind of indication maybe of of the arguments of people like derek parfit and others who said you know look like in theory, deontology and utilitarianism and virtue ethics and all this stuff are super different, but in practice, they're going to actually give you the same answers more often than not, just because there's all sorts of constraints, right? Like, what do you make of that sort of argument? Yeah. So I guess one thing is, I think if it were the case that there were not huge between country wealth differentials, such that like some people are living on a dollar a day and giving them $30 transforms their mm-hmm. whole situation. Then you would, EA would probably say, give to your local homeless people because like your money goes as far there as it would anywhere else. And you have like more direct ability to see the results of your actions and like get feedback on how well your interventions are working. And if it were not the case that, you know, factory farming is another sort of area where EAs are pretty concerned with figuring out how to end it. And if that weren't the case, if there weren't factory farming, then yeah, your your local animal shelter is probably as good as an animal shelter far away. And you can actually go check on it and make sure that the animals are like being treated appropriately and, and aren't subject to animal cruelty or whatever. And then the other huge area of focus for EA is making sure humanity survives the next couple of centuries. And if that weren't on the table, then yeah, I think like aside from those like specific areas in which EAs perceive this like big gulf between what our ethics say to do and what normal ethics say to do, then yeah, we'd be totally normal people. A big priority of mine in my free time is setting up a school like a homeschooling co-op that that will transition into a small private school for our kids and some of our friends' kids and stuff like that. And if we didn't have all of those other problems, that would probably be where I put 100% of my time effort. And so I do think EA like transitions neatly into conventional morality if like the big areas where EAs perceive these huge like inefficiencies that need to be addressed were addressed. And I guess that seems to me like a plus, like you should expect that like, you know, most views of how to live a good life like it would end up in about the same place if the huge glaring 
areas of difference were 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 possible to resolve. And if EA succeeds at resolving them, then yeah, hopefully we'll all, you know, focus on the stuff that we're best equipped to focus on and get immediate feedback on. So I think that I think that sort of segues neatly into the other big topic area we want to cover, which is I guess we've talked about place invariance. We want to talk about place invariance. We want to talk about time invariance as well, which say EA's concern for the humans not yet born and the future in general. You alluded to, we sort of talked around this sort of big problem of AI, which, you know, frankly feels like a much more realistic concern to have than it did five years ago. Like all of a sudden AI is doing a lot more freaky stuff than it used to. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about AI alignment as a concept, why EA is concerned about it, where all that comes from, mentioning as few Harry Potter fanfics as possible? Yeah, so I bet I bet I can do this with no Harry Potter fanfic references. We'll see. I think this is a big focus for effective altruism. Like a lot of EA attention and energy is going to AI related stuff. But if you're looking for the places where EA says something very different than conventional ethics, this is definitely one of them. And the argument basically goes: teams at top research labs at tech companies and in China and probably in other places as well are trying very, very hard to develop generally capable AI systems, ones that have human-like problem-solving understanding of the world, and most crucially, ability to build AI systems, because then you can replace your extremely expensive programmers with AI systems that help you build AI systems. This seems like the kind of thing that can have huge implications for our world. Like most directly and concretely, if you're just creating human things that have human-like economic contributing capabilities and you're you're creating them by the millions because once you have one it's not hard to copy it that's going to be a pretty transformative like i i tend to be pro technology i tend to be pro progress but like that's that's certainly a shock coming up on on a a industrial revolution type scale and then also eas tend to believe that the way we're designing these systems, we don't understand what goal system we are putting into them. We are designing them to have goals. We are like designing them with, with reinforcement learning type feedback systems that give them a goal. But we don't know what that goal is. We have almost no like transparency about what our system understands about what it's supposed to do. And as we make them more and more powerful, it's even harder to tell what they're doing because they're they're just very large. They're, you know, have trillions of parameters, lots of stuff going on. And the worry is that you design a system with a goal that is not compatible with the human civilization continuing in its present form. And lots of goals you might accidentally give an AI are not compatible with human civilization in its present form. Like if we want to be able to shut the AI off, that's the, the AI is pretty likely to have a goal that doesn't involve letting us shut it off. If the AI like wants to maximize the company it works for stock price. We probably as a society do not want the AI doing that. If the AI wants to like go, you know, mine a lot of resources from space in order to make more copies of itself on other planets, we we, we might have some objections to that. And a lot of these scenarios get very, very sci-fi, very, very fast. But just concretely, I think we are building very smart systems with goals that we put in there that we don't understand and don't have any way to like audit or evaluate. It seems like a recipe for trouble you know, without getting into any specific scenario. And EA thinks that alignment, which is giving those systems the goals we intend and figuring out how to audit them and tell if they have the goals we intend is like extremely important. Yeah. So I, I, you know, one of, one of my thoughts on this is to, to return to the overall theme of pessimism is I can think of no historical examples in which we have successfully steered 
large scale economic progress, right? Like, like Alfred Nobel felt so bad about inventing TNT and the being used in warfare that he endowed the Nobel Prize because he was like, wow, that was a major error on my part. So, so uh, is, is, you know, we, we can sort of talk about AI alignment theoretically as like a thing that should be a concern, but is there reason to believe that, you know, expending time and energy on this will allow us to avoid the world where like AI turns us into all into paperclips any more efficiently than if we just sort of throw our hands in the air and say, eh, it'll be what it is. So a lot of alignment research today involves taking small AI models and trying to figure out what their goals are and trying to get them to perform per certain various behaviors with, you know, five, nine, six, nine's reliability, like just small language models, trying to get them to never complete a sentence in a way that involves violence being done to a human being or trying to get them to report on their internal processes so we can identify internal processes that are deceptive, that are like misleading humans that involve thinking about how to persuade humans to give them more computing power, stuff like that. So we are at very early stages, like general AIs aren't here yet, but we have these fairly powerful systems. You know, they can like write a mediocre news article. They can make beautiful artwork. And just looking at those systems and trying to understand how do we get reliable behavior from the system in front of us right now? How do we get like a safe behavior from the system in front of us right now? How do we understand what's going on in the system right now? Like that feels to me less like trying to steer some technology on the horizon. Like I agree with you as a criticism of trying to do AI alignment work in like the 90s. But now we have the systems, they're in front of us. We can try and figure out what they're doing. Yeah, so we could obviously go down a ton of rabbit holes on this, but I want to ask another- I suggest the conversation, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, about about- future persons, which I think gets at, you know, you know, earlier, I think Charles was kind of needling you a bit about like political, you know, like places where effective altruists end up getting into sort of adopting kind of fashionable left-wing causes that maybe they shouldn't. I, I want to ask a bit about population ethics and abortion, because this is the area where it seems to me that there is a very big gulf between at least what I see effective altruist aligned people saying and what their ideas seem to imply, right? Um, and I don't know if we need to go down the rabbit hole about the repugnant conclusion. We can, but, but basically... Can you, can you explain what the repugnant conclusion is? Okay, so basically it's this thought experiment, and the thought experiment goes like this. Let's imagine there's an A world with like 10 people who are living at, who are at like utility level 1,000. Like they're really, really happy. Then imagine a B world where there's twice as many people, so 20 people, at 999 utility. Most people want to say the B world is better than the A world because yes, everyone is a little less happy, but they're still really happy. And there's so many more of them. There's double the population, you know, which means there's a lot more happiness overall. And the problem is that you can keep iterating this. You say, well, okay, but so let's imagine a C world with 40 people at 998 utility. Well, that's even better than the B world. And since B is better than A and C is better than B, then clearly C is better than A. And you see where this is going. You keep iterating this and eventually you're going to get to the conclusion that it would be better to have a ton of people all with lives that are very barely worth living, you know, like all at level one, right? Then a sort of a much smaller population where everyone, where each living person is comparably happier. The reason this 
that now there's this whole philosophical literature on like how you can you avoid this problem in population ethics? Is it even a problem? Interestingly, William McCatskill, who's kind of the most famous effective altruist alive right now, has, I think, basically said that he thinks the repugnant conclusion is the least bad of all the possible positions in population ethics. So he acknowledges it's a bullet, but he thinks that getting out of it requires you to adopt even crazier, like, you know, assumptions that that lead to their own counterintuitive conclusions. I bring this up because, you know, a lot of effective altruists are worried about their opinion or they, they think about it, they know about it. They also, whether or not they bite the bullet, they do tend to be pretty pronatal, right? So I think you said at the beginning that you want like to have, you said like six kids, six right? Kids. Yeah. So like, so like, and look, like I, I'm pretty sympathetic to all this. Like I, I think like more people is good. When are you going to start having kids, Aaron? All right, Charles, we're working on anyway. But, but, but so, but so it seems to me that this poses a kind of a big, problem for a lot of effective altruists because William McCatskill will be like, oh, you know, I think the repugnant conclusion is like the best position. And then he's like, oh, but I'm pro-choice. And then, you know, when people push him on it, they say, well, but like, wouldn't it be better if like, you know, you didn't have it, like people had to have their kids and then there'd be so many more worthwhile lives. And yes, like maybe it would make, you know, their, their parents less happy, but like, wouldn't the value, you know, of all the future life like outweigh it? I mean, they tend to retreat to this kind of weird idea where they say, well, like maybe it's not, abortion's not good, but like, should we really expend money on banning it? And to me, it all just seems like they're, they're trying to avoid the obvious implication of their view, which is any time and money spent on Planned Parenthood is a waste. Any time and money spent advocating for abortion, the Democratic Party and fighting this is a waste. Because even if abortion on the margins did improve overall utility, which seems implausible given sort of, you know, well-accepted axioms in population ethics, it clearly, there's like no way that abortion is gonna like improve it that much given the cost of there not being another life in the world. It just, it just seems to me that like- This is, this is one you, of the you, situations where Aaron is talking himself into a position. Sorry, sorry. But it just, it just seems like, like, very hard to me to support the current Democratic Party's views on abortion if you're an effective altruist. And I say this as someone, for the record, who is like basically pro-choice. Like, I don't think it's murder, but it does seem to me that like... Is there a question mark at the end of this? Yeah, just like respond. I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> this is like a... No, like, but I'm curious. Wait, no, you, no, they, yeah. I, I, I see what you're getting at. I think... There's a lot here that's like, I I think that there is a coherent position here, but it's an immensely complicated one. And it seems fair to say, okay, but most people didn't arrive at the immensely complicated position. Most people are starting from their own preconceptions. I guess the first thing I want to say is that there are pro-life EAs who I respect immensely. There are also friends of mine who are pro-life and not EAs who I respect immensely. I think something I find very valuable and rare in people is the tendency to look at the world and say, who do we care about? Should we care about more 
more people than that? Should we like expand our, our moral circle of concern farther than that? And I don't always agree with where that takes you. You know, sometimes that takes you to conclusions I don't share, but I think it's fundamentally a very human, very good impulse. And I, I feel a sort of kinship and generosity towards anyone who's saying, you know, those people over there who you don't care about, the, the unborn, the animals, the, you know, future generations living on Mars, like, have you considered that they matter too. I, I feel very, very positively about that. I will also say that pro-life EAs have tried to figure out the most effective way to prevent the deaths of unborn babies. And they've tended to think that the Against Malaria Foundation, which is where we like to give anyway, is the answer to that because malaria is incredibly deadly to pregnant women and often leads to stillbirths even when the mother survives it. So if, if you have pro-life followers who are sort of thinking about the EA perspective, but but very interested in that, that's my pitch is just that fighting malaria is extremely good for getting babies to be born. The next thing I would say is that on a societal level, getting girls more education decreases fertility. Causing people's existing children to not die increases fertility, sorry, decreases fertility, probably because if people know that their children are going to make it to adulthood, they don't feel the need to have as many. Even if you want an abundant and incredibly populous human future, I don't think you can do it by like trying to either force people to have kids they don't want, which isn't like a specific to abortion thing. Like there's, there's also, you know, don't let girls go to school. Like none of that appeals to me. And I guess on, on some level, I think that like, we haven't yet figured out how to have a like free, secular, like liberal society in which women get an education and also birth rates are high. And you, you would get them a little bit higher if you had abortion illegal, but you, you would not change that fundamental thing. And I guess to the extent that I'm interested in like a long-term future where there are lots and lots of people. I'm not really interested in like forcing into existence slightly more people right now via not treating malaria so that their parents have to have more kids or via not sending girls to school or via not allowing access to abortion. I, I'm interested in like changing that, changing the fact that we don't know how to have a, a modern liberal society with high birth rates. And I am very interested in that like both on a personal individual level, obviously, and on a, a level of like, how do we succeed at that as a society? But the idea of like treating abortion as like the lever to solve that, I sure. I don't really, yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I, I, everything you said makes total sense to me. I would just, well, before Charles gets in, I just yeah. would say, I mean, my, to me, my, my critique here is less, like, I think what that's like a totally reasonable position. I just think it like, it just it just it seems to me like even what you just said there, especially insofar as you're saying that we haven't that there seem you seem to think that there are problems with like secular modernity, like like we haven't figured out how to sort of reconcile sort of wanting high birth rates with, you know, with with like women's education example. To, to me, this all should make you not necessarily pro-life, but I think it should make you very sympathetic or interested in critics of secular modernity and should i think induce a degree of openness to i don't even want to say socially conservative but like but like kind of not normal liberal social views and and that's i guess what what strikes me is that it seems like from your your logic to me it provides a very good case for eas being adopting i think 
a bit of a different set of cultural sensibilities than they currently have. It's not necessarily an argument for like, you know, to be like pro-life, I agree with you, but it does seem like an argument for being at the very least a bit uncomfortable maybe with like, you know, the state of modern secular culture. I mean, what do you make of that? Yeah, I guess I, I, I think that I just mostly the, the culture that I choose to participate in is the one I'm building with my wife and the other couples and families that we live with and that have bought houses on our block and that we're doing the homeschooling caught with, you know, I, I like the Benedict option. I, I think that we, we don't need to fight secular modernity. We should just do our own thing and build our own thing. And then people will, you know, cause I do think liberalism got this one, right? People will often, if people see that you have something beautiful and compelling and worth living in and that you have, you know, a successful career and a large family and an amazing school that you're starting up that you're excited about and that you donate tons of money to malaria nets and that you host weekly Shabbat dinners where your wife cooks like a four course meal for 15 people every week, people will be like, what's your secret, man? You know, and, and then you tell them your secret. That's, that's, that's my... <laughs> We, we, we were discussing having Leah Sargent on the show. Yeah, so I, 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 I think we want to move soon, sort of closing thoughts, but we want to hit one or two more questions. And I guess one on one on this, the one that I wanted to ask, which is funny, it's funny to me. I let Aaron prosecute the the, the abortion topic because he's the pro-choice one. I'm the pro-life one. That's fine. I know where I stand on it. I'll let him, I'll let him talk himself into my position. It's okay. But what I wanted to ask is, do you think that bracketing questions of legality or uh, bracketing questions of how power should be exerted. Do you think that if it's within your means, it's mandatory for people, to, it is morally obligatory for people to have children? No. And the main, Interesting. Reason that, the main reason for that on like a very simple level is if you want to cause someone to be alive who would otherwise die, you can in fact buy malaria nets and you know spend a couple thousand dollars on that and a child who has already been born and whose parents desperately want them won't die. And like to me, you know, if we're not even at the point of you have a moral obligation to give your $5,000 and save a, a person from dying, then it would be like pretty crazy to leap over that to you have a moral obligation to create a person, which is going to cost you, you know, I, I, I'll say a fair bit more than $5,000 so far. And, and, and they're still pretty young. I think that, so I actually, I don't tend towards obligation as a framing very much. I tend towards like, what do I want the world to look like? And how can I live my life so as to using my resources as well as possible, get all the things I want. But I think that if you don't want kids, then it's very unlikely that the best way to build the world that you want, even a world that you want that includes a growing population, is to have kids that that you don't want to have. That that seems wildly like I, I think that you can could give money to cause existing kids to not die. I think you can like support your friends who have two and might have a third if they had like a supportive community and sort of the integrated networks of concern that like used to be more of a thing. I think there's like, there is very little chance that we would end up in a situation where the best way, you know, outside the zombie apocalypse or something where the best way to create a good human future is to have a kid who you don't have the desire to be a parent to. I guess, I guess I want to, I want to, yeah, I think I'll leave that one there. I'm going to have closing thoughts, but I still want to give you the last word, which should say we, we spent the entire, we spent the entire conversation poking at prodding at edge cases of EA. Can you give us, give our listeners sort of the simple, the simplified pitch for 
why you know why what what is what is the steel man version of ea that you want our listeners to hear before we go to our concluding thoughts yeah i guess i think that even though it is quite hard to do good in the world, it is very possible. It is possible to identify charities that can turn your money into lives saved. It's possible to identify charities that can turn your money into groundbreaking research that develops you know, new malaria vaccines so we don't have to keep buying bed nets because malaria is gone as a problem. I think it's possible to spend your money on pandemic preparedness so COVID and all the attendant awful stuff it did to our society and its institutions just is caught in the bud and doesn't happen again. I think it's possible to like understand the systems we're building better so that their introduction into the world makes it good and not bad. And since it's possible, I think a lot of people will find that they would want to do that. You know, that that is like good news. And and I, I think that you should look up what GiveWell is doing and look up what OpenPhil is doing and see if you're convinced that those are ways to get good stuff that you want done in the world, done in the world. Aaron, do you want to offer your, your including thoughts? First, yeah, I guess I would say that what I find interesting is this idea of effective altruism without obligation, where you sort of reframe it, you know, rather than kind of an ethical theory about what we're all obligated to do, sort of a la Peter Singer, you look at it as just like, you know, a kind of a pro, almost like a social reform movement, right? Like just oh, not necessarily something each individual is obligated to do, but as sort of just a broad project for how to live both sort of a positive vision. I mean, it almost sounds like a description of the good life in some sense, Kelsey, the way you describe like what you're doing, you know, coupled with kind of a sense of, all right, like with, you know, to the ex within reason sort of, you know, when we're making kind of other regarding decisions, like, you know, how do you make them better? I, I guess, yeah, you know, when, when you, when you take obligation out of it, I think this suddenly becomes a much more plausible framework. I also think it, taking obligation out of it creates a lot of wiggle room to potentially argue, you know, that anything somehow serves the interests of effective altruism. But nonetheless, like, yeah, I, I found, I think, I, I think I'm leaving the conversation less skeptical of effective altruism than, than I was when I came into it. So yeah, good. you, you, you moved the needle on me at least. It's been really great talking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so Charles, what, where where are you? Oh yeah, I mean, so so I think I think I returned to my my point from maybe midway through the conversation, which is as I alluded to, I sort of come from a or I'm I'm I am deeply intellectually indebted to a policy pessimist school. The you know that 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 follows people like Peter Rossi. Rossi is sort of a Rossi doesn't like how people use Rossi's Iron Law, which is his problem, not mine. Which is to say, you know, I it 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 it, it is unsurprising to me, or this conversation made it apparent to me why it is unsurprising to me that. EA ends up sort of focusing in on very specific causes because I think you can have measured impact on very specific, you can have real measured impact, right, with bed nets or with deworming pills. We'll bracket the question of whether a bed net is equivalent to having a child, buying a bed net is equivalent to having a child, that's not here or there. You can do policy evaluation successfully at that level. And then once you get outside of that, it becomes very rapidly impossible, like not even just hard, but essentially epistemically impossible to unpick the way in which the money that you're spending is having an impact. This is true for individual giving as much as it is for, for governmental giving. So, so, you know, I think, I think it is on the one, you know, what, the, the, the strongest case for EAs in my mind is that 
they are the people who recognize that this is true. I'm I'm a sucker for like policy evaluation and asking the basic question of does it work? And I think, you know, the, the position I come to the conversation with is my default answer to all of these questions, as was Kelsey's, is no, it usually doesn't work. And so you kind of have to, or very often it's hard to ascertain whether or not it works. And the re- result of that is you kind of have to have a little bit of a, a little bit more will to power about the whole situation, which is... Uh, Mm. Does that leave me more pro or con EA than I was previously? I'm not sure, but at least it frames the problem differently for me, which is a success in my opinion. I'll take it. We should we should do a couple of quick rounds of recommendations and then let our guests let, get back to a very busy life. Aaron, you have recommendations for our listeners. Oh, yes, Charles. I do. I Good. do. I have waited since the start of this podcast to recommend Reasons and Persons by Derek Parfit. And now I have an excuse to actually recommend it. So Reasons and Persons is the book in which this famous Oxford philosopher lays out the repugnant inclusion and also many other fascinating thought experiments about personal identity and population ethics. It is weird. It is abstract. It is not the sort of thing that you can read when you're really tired before bed, but it's really interesting. And I maintain that it will make you think about the world in a different way. and further maintain that the philosophical problems presented in this book are not just like, you know, dumb sophistry, but actually do constitute real problems that people should take seriously. So yeah, read, go, go learn as much philosophy as you need to learn to get to the level where you can read Derek Parfit's Reasons and Persons, and then go read Reasons and Persons by Derek Parfit. <laughs> I'm going to, A, A, I'm going to lie to my bet. I'm going to sort of manifold market, apropos our, one of our previous episodes, I'm going to manifold market on when Aaron moves to the Bay Area and becomes a rationalist. It's going to happen. It's 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 going to happen. That's either here or there. No, my recommendation, I'm going to do the radically anti-EA thing. We talked about abortion. We talked about charitable giving. And so I was sort of back and forth. I give frequently to a local charity here in the Rockville area called In Schieffer's Arms, which is a Jewish crisis pregnancy center. I like to support them. And I have the luxury of saying maybe they aren't spending my money the most optimally that they could, but I am engaging the local community. Now I'm encouraging you to engage with my local community. Kelsey, do you have recommendations for our listeners for anything and everything? Yeah. So I think my favorite books for like introducing where EA is like distinctive and like the areas where EA would argue it departs most from normal thinking are Toby Ord's The Precipice, which is about existential risk, things that might wipe us out. He goes through, you know, volcanoes and asteroids and the case that climate change could be on this list, although ultimately it isn't. Climate change is is not going to lead to human extinction. And then goes into some EA commitments on bio and AI. I think it's like a good place to start if you're like, okay, where is EA not just saying normal things, but like credibly and seriously and and skeptically and pretty carefully? Great. Well, I think that's about all the time that we have. Kelsey, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. We're glad to. Thank you, as always, to our producers at Nebulous. Listeners, if you have questions, comments, concerns, highly efficient donations that you'd like to direct our way, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Aaron is at Aaron Sibarium. That's about all the time we're giving to this episode. So until next time, I'm Charles Fain Lehman. I'm Aaron Sibarium. And you've been listening to Institutionalized. We hope you'll join us again soon.